Welcome back to the Heather McCoy Show. I'm joined live from North Georgia Mountain's most famous resident, the legendary radio talk show host, Mike Malloy. His show, The Mike Malloy Show, can be heard locally on KTLK 1150 from 8 to 10 p.m. and can be heard on the web at MikeMalloy.com. Welcome, Mike. Hey, nice to be here. So what's it like being a progressive liberal in a very uh, conservative state of Georgia? Uh, what's it like? Sort of like being a... I don't know. It's sort of like being a, a nice big fat worm right after a rainstorm, and you know there are a whole bunch of robins just waiting to eat your <laughs> ass alive. Kind of like that. Wow. I mean, is it like contentious with your neighbors, or how does that go? Uh, no, nobody. Uh, <clears throat> people are not aware of uh, you know wh- where I am or or what have you. Plus, uh, there, there are no stations in Atlanta for the past twenty five years that carry programming that could even be considered possibly, maybe, not right-wing. Uh, the only exception to that was back during the Air America days, which ended about six years ago. We had a station here in Atlanta, um, <clears throat> maybe a 5,000-watt station that was an Air America affiliate, and uh, you could not hear it over the entire metro Atlanta area. You could only hear it if you lived in certain uh, uh, certain parts of, of metro Atlanta. So it, it, Atlanta, even though Atlanta itself, the city, is fairly liberal, has had uh, left uh, center-left mayors and city councils and so on and so forth for a long time. It's the area that sends John Lewis to, to Congress every year, and I uh, used to send Cynthia McKinney until... Uh, uh, there was a coup against her that was real effective about a decade ago. Um, even even with all that, um, media in this con- uh, in this city in this metro area is uh, uh, incredibly right wing. Uh, it 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 is right wing as you'll find in any section of the country. So yeah. consequently, there are no let me repeat that no progressive voices available for anyone in Metro Atlanta to hear. Yeah, and um, I, I just want to ask, are you in local, involved in local politics? Me? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I made an attempt about 16 years ago <clears throat> to run for the uh, Georgia General Assembly <clears throat> as a member of the, um, the Georgia House. But uh, uh, in organizing a political campaign, you know, I, I got the word real fast, so it was going to take money. And the possible constituency that I would have had was not interested in being an activist constituency. At the time, I lived in the area that included Emory University and CDC, and it was the 67th Congressional District in in Georgia, which was the most liberal, uh, going by its voting patterns, uh, in the state. And even they were represented by kind of a blue dog Democrat in the Georgia House. So... Yeah. After some quick, quick polling, I found that, uh, you know, forget about it. So, no, I'm not involved <laughs> in the least in Georgia politics. Wouldn't if I was invited to be. It's, uh, it's just, it's, you know, it's like an invitation to get into a sewer. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm not interested. Yeah. Um, when I hear, I hear all, you often on your show talking about growing up in Toledo, Ohio as a kid, as a backdrop to events that are currently going right. on today. What are some of the main themes that are going on today that you caught on to as a child there? Well, when I was a kid, everybody was, uh, at least in Toledo, everybody was union. You were either a member of the UAW or the Machinist Union or, or some union. Uh, we had 
the one percent in Toledo at the time. Uh, families like the Stranahan family that owned uh, Libby Owens Ford Glass Company, and and you know we 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 had mm-hmm. certainly our one percent, but the ninety nine percent in in Toledo was in fact ninety nine percent. It was working class or lower. Um, most of the people I grew up with were um, blue collar working class people, black and white. Um, and the, uh, uh, the the difference, I guess back then as compared to now is there was a strong union movement there were progressive movements afoot even though there was a long ways to go when i grew up in the 50s because uh, black folk were still considered uh, invisible uh and certainly were not allowed uh any uh any of the uh, uh legal or, or human rights that white people were allowed but it was moving in the right direction, slowly, yeah. glacially, but it was still moving. And, of course, today uh, in the United States, the move is exactly the opposite direction, to destroy the middle class, destroy unions, destroy destroy just about everything, except anything that would ultimately benefit the 1%. In my lifetime, I, I was born in 79, so I've always felt it moving backwards. Was there a sense of excitement when it was moving forwards? Uh, there was to me, uh, you know, I kind of started to become conscious during uh, the so-called beat movement. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the writers and the musicians and the poets who comprised the beat movement back in the 50s. And, and it, was, it was, you know, it worked its way into Toledo fairly quickly because of our geographic location. To the west of us was Chicago, to the east of us was Cleveland, uh, to the north was Detroit. And even though these were also working-class cities, uh, Chicago, especially uh, then and now, had a very strong arts community. Uh, everything from theater to poetry to uh, graphic uh, uh, graphic arts to uh, uh, writing. Uh, uh, you know, it, it just went on and on and on. So Toledo was kind of in a crossroads of that, and the. Uh, there was palpable excitement in the air that the beat movement itself, uh, people like Ginsburg and Orlovsky mm-hmm. and, uh, and Kerouac, and uh, I mean, just on and on and on, that they were ripping apart the uh, uh, kind of post-World War II fascist attitude in this great struggle between so-called democracy and, and, and Soviet communism. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was an exciting time. It was fa- it was fairly short lived, uh, and and it ended when they put the bullets in Kennedy. Uh, sure, the protest movements continued. There was a lot of civil rights legislation that passed afterward, but <clears throat> uh, after his assassination. But I think the uh, national security state, as as disorganized as it seemed to be back in the early '60s, was letting the world know. Uh, we can kill presidents if we want to. So yeah. everyone pay attention. Yeah. And uh, I, I think a lot of people did. A lot of people did pay attention. They assassinated Black Panther leaders and stuff like that <clears throat> as well. Oh, yeah, it just went on and on and on uh, with Medgar Edwards. I mean, they were even going after people like George Wallace, who, uh, while nominally a Democrat, was, uh, uh, you know, Wallace was not did not really become a full-blown racist until he started losing... Uh, elections in Alabama trying to be a moderate. Then he decided to become a racist. So a lot of people were being just blown away. And, uh, you know, uh, how many how many national figures have to be assassinated 
yeah. before you start to realize, you as a citizen start to realize, Jesus, I better keep my head down. Yeah, in that era, like when you were growing up, uh, <clears throat> did you have like a love affair with the magic of radio back then? Um, well, I came at a very interesting time. Uh, radio that my parents listened to was starting to die out. Uh, radio dramas. I can remember really, really way back as a kid listening to uh, uh, um, kid programs on the air like Superman or The Lone Ranger mm-hmm. or stuff like that. But um, we got television when I was 12, and by then radio had pretty much started to uh, to lose its uh, unifying appeal across the country. Plus, uh, music radio was taking over rock and roll and blues and uh, uh, so radio, uh, as a medium of information, was starting to die just about that time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, when, did you have any radio here, radio heroes growing up, or no, not really. No, uh, not really. To me, to me, it was just background. You know, it was just there. Uh, I, I guess if I had any heroes, and, and they're nameless, would be the uh, the uh, sports commentators who oh, on yeah. the weekends would. Uh, announced the Detroit Tiger games or the Cleveland Indian games or the White Sox games. And, you know, as a kid growing up, you used to hear, I used to hear, uh, you know, we'd be out playing on a Saturday or a Sunday, and everybody was out on the stoop with a radio, uh, uh, you know, with a long extension cord. It would, you know, air conditioning was not all that popular, especially up north. So people would sit out in front with their radios tuned in to WJR in Detroit or a CKLW in Windsor, Ontario, or or local Toledo stations, but everybody was listening to the same thing: baseball. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you moved down to Atlanta, was that just to start the alternative weekly magazine, Creative Loathing? And how did that magazine come about? Well, no, I came to Atlanta in 1970 just uh, through circumstances. You know, how does anybody wind up anywhere? Yeah, um, I, I had to get out of Toledo because it was. Uh, it it, it 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 was yeah I think it was very obvious uh, for me back then that it was a city that was going nowhere and um, I understood pollution and I understood the, that I hated the weather so you know I, I went south and and just by serendipity wound up uh, in Atlanta and uh, first started writing for a uh, alternative newspaper here called the Great Speckled Bird. And it was it was like the Village Voice. It was like the Chicago Reader, like the L.A. Reader. It was uh, an alternative uh, uh, newspaper. Yeah, that built itself as a radical voice from the South. And and you know we were this is back in the day when the FBI would sit across the street in their cars and, and watch who, <laughs> came and, who came and left, and they would tap our phones and all this other horse hockey, you know, because we were writing about social justice, racial justice, uh, anti- uh, pro-prison reform. Uh, we were writing about um, white police corruption in Atlanta. This is uh, uh, right around the time when Atlanta finally elected um, a-, a black mayor. Uh, I think we had a Jewish mayor first. But prior to that, it was real hardcore right-wing uh, 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 southern-style uh, attitudes about everything. So the bird, the great speckled bird, was an alternative voice. It started in the late 60s at Emory University as an anti-war publication, just simply anti-Vietnam War. But uh, then it expanded out uh, after the founders all graduated from Emory, and it was taken over by a group called the Atlanta Writers Collective. And uh, uh, by the time I joined up, 
which was actually in uh, 73, it had been around for about five years. Oh, and wow. It had become, it become a, real, a real radical voice for, for its time, and hell, it would seem like a radical voice now. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially coming out of the South. So it was a, a hardcore progressive politics that had just about every faction within the collective, from feminists to uh, uh, um, communists to Trotskyites to you know liberals to everybody. So it was it was a real interesting group to be associated with back in those uh, uh, those years. Yeah, and in today's media environment, you know, it's really hard to imagine uh, making the leap from al- writing an alternative weekly newspaper to uh, CNN. How how did that come about? Well, I had some interim interim, uh, steps in there. Uh, I went from uh, The Great Speckled Bird. I moved over to the publication you mentioned, Creative Loafing, which was more of an entertainment uh, publication, although there was a group of us who decided to to use it as a vehicle for real investigative journalism in Atlanta, which we did. Uh, And then from there on to another alternative paper, the Atlanta Gazette, and uh, then I got involved in theater here and uh, finally realized I needed a job. So <laughs> I went to, uh, went to CNN, and, and uh, it was very simple to get a job back then. They would just tear off some AP wire copy and hand it to you and say, here, ten stories, go write them as if you were writing for television. And AP copy is for newspapers, and mag- uh, the newspapers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just sat down. They gave me an hour. Uh, I sat down and rewrote the stories for broadcast. And all I knew about broadcast was what I saw on television, as the saying goes. So I tried to write the way, you know, the news guys would talk uh, stories on television. And got hired. They they were needing people. CNN had only been around then for uh, uh, about three years, uh, two years, and they needed people. So I got hired as a writer and yeah. then moved, moved on from that into being a producer and and stayed with that for about two or three years, and then just, it, it, it was too intense uh, at CNN at the time. There was no real competition. It was 24-hour news service, and 90% of it was live, and it just got to be way, way too pressury. Uh, you know, we had to work 10-hour shifts. There was no union. We were paid uh, whatever they offered. It was take it or leave it. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, it, it, it was just too much. When you're writing for three news shows, three major news shows in a row, by the time your 10-hour shift was over, you just wanted to go someplace and get drunk, which a lot of us did, and that's a good recipe to become an alcoholic. So you know, <laughs> we, we, a lot of us just bailed out or, or got involved in something else. Yeah. Uh, this is the Heather McCoy Show. I'm being joined by Mike Malloy, radio talk show host, and he can be heard locally here at uh, KTLK 1150 and on the web at MikeMalloy.com. Um, this seems like a really obvious question, but uh, what is the difference between CNN then and today? Well, CNN at the beginning, Ted Turner, even though he was a white male Southerner he, he, uh, and a graduate of the Citadel, he, uh, he still had an attitude uh, that would have been considered really progressive back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he, he owned a superstation, uh, Channel 17. It was kind of like WGN out of Chicago now. Mm-hmm. It was a superstation that would be picked up all over the country. And he just decided he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to do a cable news network, CNN. So he put it together. And at the very beginning, it was, uh, first of all, it was uh, generic uh, anchors. Nobody, there was no personalities. There was no uh, uh, Brian Williams or Katie Couric. It was just generic news anchors. And the focus 
was not on the anchors or their personalities or all this other garbage. The focus was on news. And uh, <clears throat> at the time, we had about, I don't know, maybe six or seven bureaus around the country. There was one in Beirut, there was one in Tokyo, one in uh, London, one in, uh, oh, I don't know, not that many. Six or seven uh, 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 foreign bureaus that were owned by CNN. So the news that we did, and then, of course, a couple, I think there was one in Chicago, one in New York, and one in L.A. So the news that we did back then was, was really news. It, it was not, there were no fluff pieces. There were no pieces about, you know, um, uh, bears that, uh, little bear cubs that uh, were trying to cross the street with a clutch of ducks, you know. Yeah. There's none of that crap. It was just, this is what you need to know to make decisions about whether or not your ass is going to keep living or if you're going to die. This is what you need to know. And it was, it, we, we were instructed to write that way. When I started out as a writer, uh, we had senior editors who, if they noticed any kind of um, fluff in your copy, they would just hand the whole story back to you and say, rewrite it. And there might be two minutes before you had to have that in front of the anchor or, or with the person around the teleprompter. And the pressure was just unbelievable. But the difference back then, there was no Wolf Blitzer, there was no this, there was no that. The focus was on news, get the story out. And some of it was really hardcore. Uh, I worked there during uh, the period of the uh, Lebanese Revolution. And, uh, you know, we used to get video feeds that never would have made it onto television because they were so graphic. But uh, um, the attitude was tell the story. You know, don't you know? Don't get involved in in personality crap. Tell the story. Yeah, yeah. And and that's gone now. I mean, there there is not a, you know, you have a sewer like Fox that is nothing but a bunch of people sitting around lying and trying to destroy the country, all the way up to uh, MSNBC that tries to promote itself as liberal, and uh, they have some liberal commentators, but the, it's corporate news. It's owned by NBC, which is owned in part by General Electric, which is a weapons manufacturer and one of the major polluters on Earth. Uh, you have NBC, which is owned by the same conglomerate. Uh, CBS, I, hell, I don't even know who owns that anymore. Uh, and then you have CNN that has just lost its way. There's an yeah. article in, t- in today's New York Times about Alan Sorkin's new program on HBO called The Newsroom. And it's kind of modeled on what CNN could have been or, or was at one time, but is not now. CNN now is, uh, like a lot of news organizations, they're terrified that if they tell the truth, uh, these right-wing halfwits and teabaggers uh, <laughs> or, or members of Congress will start screaming liberal bias. So, you know, and, and this is what said, let me just give you a quick example of what has happened to journalism. Uh, journalism used to be about telling the truth. Uh, what it's about now is simply if, if, if I say Obama was born on Mars and you say Obama was born in Hawaii, the news organizations feel that they have to give equal presentation of my half-assed position and your factual position. Yeah. Because I'm saying he was born on Mars. Well, if they leave out my side of it, ooh, ooh, mm-hmm. they're not presenting both sides. Yeah. Well, the problem here is that the average American television viewer, being dumber than a sack full of doorknobs, <laughs> takes a look at that and says, well, uh, was he born on Mars or Hawaii? Uh, good for them. They're presenting both sides. You know, but because he is a dumbass, the average American television viewer can't 
realize that the facts are all on, he was born in Hawaii. Yeah. So that's the problem with, uh, with news today. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, the Rupert Murdoch uh, organization. They're, oh, no. they're, about, they're no more about news than, than the Pope is about making sure everyone has an abortion. Uh, they're not about news. <laughs> it's a propaganda outfit. But yeah. all the rest of them who still declare that their news organizations are, are destroying themselves with this ridiculousness of presenting two sides when one side is obviously garbage. Yeah, I always like the famous Wolf Blitzer words, we'll have to leave it there. You know, it's just... Right, we'll have to leave it there. <laughs> just as someone has asked a question that may reveal the scam that CNN is, is pulling. So it, it's, it's, it's really awful. And it's not just CNN. No. I mean... You take a look at the over-the-air networks, uh, CBS, ABC, and NBC. They have about 22 minutes a night to present the news, and yet they use about a third of that for pieces about duckies and porpoises and, and little fishies jumping in the sea and isn't that cute. And then they have the person of the week who's somebody who, um, uh, you know, makes sure that uh, uh, children in, in South Alabama have school books or something. That's not news. Yeah. That is not news. It's something else. It's human interest, granted, but it's not news. How, so, um, oh, I was going to ask you, how do you think John Stewart got away with what he did on Crossfire, which ultimately ended the show? Uh, do what now? How what did, 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 did John Stewart get away with what he did on Crossfire, and it kind of killed the show? Uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think Stewart uh, was as responsible for that as he would like to think he was. Um, Crossfire was getting too much pressure from right-wing organizations uh, who were saying that CNN had a left bias and that the, uh, the guy on the right or the woman on the right was not getting equal time. Uh, and, and plus, to the extent that Stewart was right, was the fact that it just became a screaming match and you couldn't hear what they were saying. Uh, this one was screaming, that one was screaming, which was kind of a preview of uh, what Congress is going to be like uh, during the Bush years. So, you know, Stewart hit the nail on the head, but he's not the reason uh, that CNN dropped the program. They would never drop a program because one, um, quote, comedian, end quote, uh, uh, commentator said, you know, you guys are crazy. All you do is scream at each other. Yeah. Uh, that, that program was dropped because there was too much pressure from the right. You don't get programs where you have balanced presentation. They, they just they don't happen. Part of the reason for that is because most of what comes to the right, from the right is nonsense. It's yeah. just crazy nonsense. We were going talking about before how you'd left CNN because you didn't want to start an alcohol habit. How did you get home? <laughs> well, that was part of it. <laughs> part right? of it, yeah. The stress was just <laughs> too much. <laughs> yeah, how, how did you transition over to radio? I had a friend who was working uh, for radio sta a talk radio station here in Atlanta, and uh, uh, she was like the office manager, and she called me one day and said they had an opening on Saturday afternoon, so I ought to come over and talk to the program director. And, <clears throat> you know, I said, nah, you know, I can't. Uh, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, she, she said, you'll like this. So I came over. Uh, the station at the time was WCNN. They had no connection to CNN. It was just that the person that owned it, owned the radio station, was a friend of Ted Turner's. And Turner said, yeah, you can use the call letters. I don't care. Uh, in order to get us some publicity. It had no connection to CNN whatsoever. But anyway, I went to work there. It was a Saturday show. They paid me 10 bucks an hour to do uh, Saturday 1 to 3. 
you know, to our program. And uh, uh, that lasted about three or four months, and they had an opening in the uh, afternoon drive, four to seven. And I said, me, me, me. And they said, well, we're, we don't have any money. We're just going to pick up syndicated program, programming. I said, I'll do it for free. So I did it for free for about eight months. And uh, that's how I just learned trial and error how to do radio. And then the real opening at WSB came up, and I went and applied for it and got it. Oh, that's cool. And that had, a, that, had, that had an actual paycheck with it. That's always nice. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. What was it like to work with Phil Hendry at WSB? I wasn't around him that long, and when I knew him, he was just perfecting that phony uh, caller act that he does. <laughs> I used to watch him in the studio where he would he would have an actual phone. Rather than talking to the microphone, he would have an actual phone to one ear and uh, the microphone near his mouth, and when he was doing the bit of the crazy caller, he would turn his face away from the mic and talk into the phone. And it was very effective. I used to laugh my ass off. I thought it was the funniest thing I ever saw. But this is back in the day when he was doing funny shtick. He wasn't. He, he and he was no more of a right winger than than I was. Yeah. He was. He was. He was a radio comedian. But I guess he decided that the money was more money was available by being a right wing whore than being. No offense to sex workers than being somebody who just went ahead and um, uh, did a, a fairly entertaining shtick. So uh, I think Hendry went off the deep end. Uh, when I knew him here in Atlanta, I liked him. He was a nice guy. Um, they forced us into a competitive situation. That's a problem. Yeah. Hendry, Hendry and I and a woman named Jane something were all, we didn't know this, but we were all competing for the uh, uh, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. slot on WSV. Uh, that was a pretty big deal because WSB covered 30 states at night. It was a, a clear channel, not clear channel the company, but clear channel the way the FCC set things up back in the 20s. Uh, uh, stations that would have a certain uh, broadcast frequency that nobody else in the country could have. And that was for a matter of national security. If we were attacked or something, a WR, any station that has three letters is usually started out as a 50,000 watt clear channel station, uh, with one exception, that is KDKA in, in, in Pittsburgh. They had four callers. But WOR in New York, WLS in Chicago, WSB in, uh, here in Atlanta, any station with three call letters was, uh, was a 50,000 watt. So uh, this Jane and Hendry and I were all competing for this late-night slot, um, we didn't know that, but we were, and then finally they made their decision, and they hired me, and they told Hendry to hit the road, and uh, this Jane woman, I think, wound up as a right-winger in uh, Louisville. Uh-huh. Uh, it seems like everybody who started out as a middle-of-the-roader or center-left or center-right, they all decided that the money, and, the, and they were right, that the money was on the right-wing, being a right-wing, lying uh, propagandist, for the neo-fascist attitudes in this country, and the people who made that decision got rich, just like Sean Hannity. Yeah, uh, I worked. I worked here in Atlanta when Hannity was on a competing station, and he. I mean, it was it was awful radio, terrible radio. Still but he, is. He hooked, him, he hooked himself up with Newt Gingrich, and when Newt <coughs> was in Congress trying to get special dispensation for Rupert Murdoch. So Murdoch could own a network here and not be an American citizen, which was against the law at the time, still is, I think. Um, Hannity uh, 
uh, Hannity was kind of like Newt's gopher. So Newt rewarded him that when they finally did get Fox started, uh, Hannity was given uh, uh, a slot on Fox, and he's been there ever since. So how would you describe your show, The Mike Malloy Show, to someone who hasn't heard it? Insane. Insane. I used to be a liberal, and then I became a progressive, and then I became a radical, and now uh, I'm just ready to politically tear the entire system down because it no longer works. Uh, uh, The system of self-government that uh, was based on genocide and racism when when the founding fathers so-called put it together to begin with. I mean, let's face it, women didn't get the right to vote until 1920. Um, African Americans didn't get a unqualified right to vote until the 60s. So the whole system was put together on lies and deception. Uh, okay, so it chunked along for a while, but, but this move toward fascism that's pretty global right now, but, but it's also very strong in this country again. We had this back in the 30s where the right-wingers decided to assassinate uh, FDR and just couldn't quite pull it off. Uh, and then they assassinated Kennedy, and uh, I think every president since has been real aware um, how uh, what thin ice are on. But the system now is so corrupt and so rotten and filthy and 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 so degenerate that my position on the radio is simply it's time to end the system because it can't be repaired and replace it with with a form of democratic socialism. That always scares people, so I turn it around and call it social democracy, where uh, I kind of like the uh, Norwegian uh, or the Scandinavian models. To yeah. me, those work. The Scandinavian models of uh, um, uh, economics and, and, and politics and uh, using kind of a parliamentary system so that um, if there, first of all, that would allow more than two political parties, it's the political party system that has destroyed the country. Uh, I think Jefferson and, and, and Madison warned against setting up a political party system. They said that would destroy democracy, and it has. So we're left here with the shell of what the founders promised, uh, even though they, they knew that they were racist, they were slave owners. They, they, when they said all men are created equal, that was a lie, and they knew it was a lie. Um, so it, 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 it's time to change the system. And the one thing that Jefferson said that made sense to me, that the tree of liberty uh, occasionally needs to be nurtured with the blood of tyrants and, and uh, <coughs> revolutionaries. Um, I don't necessarily think that violent revolution is, uh, is necessary. I think the American people can affect change by what I've talked about for five years now, just Put 30 million people in the streets who just sit down and say, enough, we're not going to do this anymore. And that will get the attention of the corporatists who now own us. Yeah, I don't, I mean, that's one of the discouraging things. It just seems like uh, we can't seem to pull that together. No, we can't. And I doubt that we ever will, unless and until the right wing totally takes over this country, the political, religious, corporatist right wing, the the neo-fascists, uh, and I think at that point, maybe, perhaps, people will realize what has happened and they will resist. You have to remember the uh, revolution, 99% of the time, whether it is violent or not violent, comes out of the middle class. It doesn't come out of the oppressed uh, poor groups. 
Yeah. Uh, it always comes. I don't care if it's Che Guevara or, uh, or Lenin. I don't care if it's Mao Zedong or George Washington. Revolution always arises in a society's middle class. Ho Chi Minh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela. Revolution does not come from people who have been impoverished, impoverished and beaten down. Now, there, I say 99% because there are uh, a couple of, of exceptions to that, I'm sure. And once revolution begins, then, of course, the oppressed classes do join in. But, the, but, but revolution has to begin um, with the theor- uh, theorists, the middle class, the people who understand how to organize and how to, how to bring it about. And there are a lot of those people walking around and writing in the United States today. It's just that most people are not paying attention. I, I hope the time comes when they will pay attention, but it's not now. Yeah, it's not now. Lindsay Lohan has a few more cars to crash, and then, well, sometime. Um, although I never heard you say explicitly on air, I believe one of the undercurrent themes of your show is a quote, I believe, that can be attributed to the late folk singer Utah Phillips, who once said that the long memory is the most radical idea in America. Do you agree that's kind of one of your undercurrent themes of the show? Oh, absolutely. We, we, we do not have a, a, a collective uh, a memory uh, and television is mostly to blame for that. I realize it's very easy. Television is such an easy target, but maybe it's an easy target because it is such an enormous target. But television is all about the sole function of television is to teach us to forget. Um, now, in the process of doing that, they may, use, they may use various ways to do it with entertainment and garbage like Dancing with the Stars <laughs> and sitcoms and, and phony news shows. But the function, the purpose, the aim, the goal of vision is to uh, teach people to utterly forget. Uh, and by forget, I mean to forget what happened yesterday. Yeah. So I, I think that the goal is to destroy not just long-term memory, but short-term memory and immediate memory. Just destroy it all. Because if people remember the lies that were told to them, if people remember the deception, if people remember... Uh, the deceit and the betrayal, then they tend to get pissed off and start to uh, reach for their guns or reach for their pitchforks and and, and reach for their uh, uh, little red books of revolution. So you know, media is 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 just the mouth of corporatism. That's yeah. all it is. But, yeah, and I'm not. You know, these are not my ideas. Uh, this goes back to Himmler, this goes back to the Nazis. They understood how important media was in influencing people. They understood how important it was to tell the big lie over and over and over again until the public accepted it as truth. And that's exactly what is going on here. And you're not corporately backed. In fact, you've been on quite a few radio shows and networks. Currently, you're self-syndicated. What's the challenges associated with that? Well, I have a couple of uh, good business partners, one of whom was associated with Air America uh, during uh, our heyday at Air America. But I, I, I don't know. It's just try to do a, a, a good program. It's very risky. We have no guarantees. Uh, Kathy and I could be uh, unemployed tomorrow, Kathy being my wife who produces the show. Uh, we could be on the street tomorrow, um, figuratively speaking. But uh, uh, it, it, it's a constant struggle. We, uh, we rely 
for the most part, on subscribers who subscribe to the podcast. We uh, sponsorships; people can sponsor an hour of the program for a hundred bucks, and and then of course, uh, our business partners uh, are constantly uh, churning the market to find advertisers for us. So, um, when you put all those little disparate pieces together, uh, there's enough to keep us going. Yeah, and uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Heather McCoy Show on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Um, I know your show can get pretty intense. How do you unwind after a show? I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, I, I don't do anything. I, I just... Uh, uh, I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, we go off the air at midnight, uh, Eastern Time, and I leave the studio and go upstairs and uh, maybe have a, a, I don't know, a bowl of Cheerios or something, or uh, watch. I'd switch over to Turner uh, Classic uh, Television, uh, TCM, Turner Classic Movie Channel, and see uh, what's on TV and maybe watch television for an hour. Old movies, not television, but old yeah. movies. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't... You don't I feel like an... Ingen- it- I'm sorry, do you don't feel like an general ingen- rush after the show at all? N- n- no, I've... I've the intensity that people hear during that three hours I'm on the air is very, very real. It's genuine. None, nothing that I do is fake. It can't be because I, you know, I believe this stuff. I believe the stuff I talk about, and I get very pissed off when, when, when I see what's going on. But it seems to happen in the moment, and when the program's over, the program's over. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I've just learned that if I carry that kind of craziness with me, all the time, you know, I'll be, I'll go nuts or drop dead. Yeah. So, you know, at at midnight, <clears throat> when the program's over, midnight, midnight Eastern time, I'm finished with it. There have been a lot of times. This is kind of a um, a joke between Kathy and me. Fifteen minutes after I'm off the air, uh, I will have forgotten two or three of the topics, I'll, and I'll say to her, "What was it I was saying about, <laughs> you know, blank?" And she'll have to remind me. Because I have learned to to finish the program and finish it, just yeah. be done with. It. Otherwise, you you know you carry that stuff around with you, you'll go nuts. Do you have a favorite unwinding story in the news currently? I don't. You don't? Okay. Well, in here in Orange County, I think my favorite is uh, the TVN Enterprise is going down with a lawsuit from the granddaughter. So it just more and more gory details come out each and every right. week, and it's just amazing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thank you, Mike Malay, for joining us on the Heather McCoy Show. And uh, Sure, Heather. My pleasure. Uh, it was good talking to you. It was thank great you talking for to you. Thank you inviting me. Yeah. Uh, Mike Malay can be heard locally on KTLK 11, AM 1150 from 8 to 10 p.m. And you can find him online at MikeMalloy.com. This is the Heather McCoy Show.